Hey, how's it going? Welcome to Tell You What, the podcast, where we talk with songwriters and musicians about the craft of songwriting and the making of music. Our guest this episode is Nashville-based musician and songwriter Michaela Ann. We talk about the songs on her third full-length album and her first on the Yep Rock label, Desert Dove, which was released last year. It is a wonderful record, a country record at its core, but the arrangements and songwriting reflect a wide range of influences and sounds. Just a great listen all the way through, and Michaela has an amazing voice. She was also just wonderful to talk with, very thoughtful and generous. Michaela has an interesting background. She's lived in a lot of places. We spent some time discussing how this has shaped her creative path. Okay, so we've been in this quarantine deal for for a while now. I've talked in previous episodes about the ways to support your favorite artists while they are sidelined and unable to tour, buy some merch, buy some records, check out their live streaming events. But let's not forget another casualty in this mess, the live venues. These places have been quiet and empty for a while now, and it's starting to look like they may be among the last to come back to life. Many of these, some of the best in fact, are independent operations and are really struggling now. They need our support, so they're ready to go when the bands are ready to hit the road again, whenever that is. So think about the places you like to go see shows. You know, your favorite place with that great bar in the front where you can get a burger and a beer before the show. A great listening room in the back. That spot against the wall where you can hang out and watch the show. That shelf where you can put your drink on. And see what you can do to help. Many have GoFundMe or other donation-based things happening. You can also buy gift cards for future shows. This is a great idea. Consider it an investment in your live music future. All right, quick shout out to Jimmy Ryan at Five Head Entertainment and Mariah Tapp at Yep Rock for helping me make this episode happen. Really appreciate the help. So let's get to it. Here's our Tell You What discussion with Michaela Ann. Welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am uh, properly quarantined in the home offices of Tell You What Studios in Evanston, Illinois. You are at your home in Nashville, is that correct? That is correct, yes. I hope you are in good company and safely quarantined. I am. I live with, I have a husband and we have um, we have a really wonderful house and have housemates that live with us another artistic couple so it's honestly been every day I'm just counting my blessings it's honestly been a uh, we've we've managed to make it feel like this kind of little creative commune that we're just trying our best to pretend that everything's okay <laughs> yeah well it's important so. to have a good a good team a good quarantine yes. team yes exactly all right, so let's talk about, let's back up a little bit, talk about your first exposures to music when you were young, um, around the house or community or wherever you remember uh, finding music for the first times. Yeah, my parents always had music on, um, whether it was the radio or honestly, like they would play VH1 all the time on the TV. And okay. I just remember like dancing to music all the time and 
my dad was in the military, so we moved a lot. Um, but at some point they decided to get a piano and my brother was, is two years older than me and he started playing piano and I was like four. Um, but I became really interested and I remember, I still really vividly remember sitting at the piano and looking at, at the keys and playing a minor third for the first time and thinking it was the most beautiful sound. (laughs) (laughs) I really, from, from the beginning was drawn to sad minor, minor sounds. Um, so yeah, those were my early memories of, of hearing my brother play, you know, just beginner piano and then stealing his books and then listening to whatever records my parents were listening to as a, as a young kid. I loved the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. I loved Whitney Houston. Those were kind of my go-to. Whitney Houston, Sheena Easton, and the soundtrack to Dirty Dancing were like the tape cassettes that I would put on and and dance. So those were like the formative, formative things. And then honestly, do you remember Encarta, the, um, on computers, like it came I'm with old. Microsoft? I remember everything. <laughs> so Microsoft Encarta, <laughs> I, I would like. I do remember yeah. Encarta. Actually, I was also a big nerd, so. Okay. Well, I, you know, we had like a whole, which people don't have anymore, but we had the the collection of encyclopedias. And I right. remember always like looking through the, the books of encyclopedias. But then when we got a computer and we had Encarta, I would go through and they had clips of, of different music. And for Little some audio reason, clips. yes. Yeah. And the two that really struck me that I listened to over and over again were, was the Chopin. Um, I think it was Nocturne number 72 And it was a clip of that, and I would play that over and over and over again. And then Donnie Osmond, Puppy Love. (laughs) (laughs) Those two, for some reason, I just remember, you know, being like five or something and listening to them over and over again on the the computer. So those were my early... I think they make a great pair. I think they they go together very well. You also probably accounted for about 50% of the spins on both of those in (laughs) Carta. Exactly. Clips. Well, thinking about it now, I I still because there was a video of Donny Osmond singing "Puppy, Puppy Love, Love," and I remember just like the I remember connecting to the emotion, like that he just kind of would like go in big on the chorus, and I remember just replaying it and looking at the look on his face and not understanding like I couldn't articulate what it was, but it was the same type of kind of like stirring in my heart that like the sadness of that that nocturne still i love that nocturne so much so i so you did make a connection between the two and you're somewhere in your brain yeah no i didn't i'm not aware of it until just now this moment that i'm talking about it <laughs> but <laughs> looking back yes there's a connection <laughs> so you mentioned you were military family do you did moving around a lot uh, end up exposing you to different kinds of music do you think that was part of why you have kind of an eclectic um, music interest yeah (laughs) yeah I I do my you know we moved every other year my dad was a submarine captain in the navy so I think that exposed me to so many different people which therefore exposed me to a lot of different music so what was you know kind of cool among a circle of friends in you know, a small town outside of Seattle, Washington was very different than like when I moved 
to southern Italy and what kind of music I was exposed to there among just from what was on the radio and also just the kids that I was hanging out with that I then learned about their what music they liked. Um, so I think for sure that kind of diversity, I think back to just like the different phases of music I went through that, you know, I loved old school American songbook jazz that my grandparents really got me into because when I would go to Michigan for the summers, I would spend time with my grandparents. And I remember my grandpa taking me to a used CD shop and just going through and picking out CDs that of old jazz music that he thought I would like. Um, and then I remember having a, a best friend in like fifth or sixth grade who was Filipino and her family in the Philippines would send these kind of like variety shows at, that were on TV in the Philippines and had all oh. this kind of like dance pop music and we would make up, we would copy the dances. And so I'm like that kind of stuff. I had a range from all of the different people I was around. Um, I would, I would definitely say it's because of that movement. I, I feel like it would have been different if I was kind of in the same circle and community for my entire upbringing. Right. So was there a point at which maybe you kind of fell for country music, which is generally speaking the the style in which you perform now? Uh, yeah. Yeah. When I was, I didn't, when I was really young, I didn't like country music. My, the way that I thought about it was that my dad liked country music and my mom liked Motown and R&B. And I thought my mom was cooler. <laughs> so, <laughs> my, my dad, I would kind of tease him, you know, he loved Joe, Joe Diffie, um, who unfortunately yep. just passed away. Yes, and that's right. He loved Travis Tritt and, you know, he was, he was a military guy and I like, my dad is such a fascinating character to me just as a person, um, because he also introduced me to a lot of musical theater that he loved and Barbara Streisand, but in some ways he was, he was a Navy sailor. So they would, you know, play country music and drink beer and, and I remember that and remember thinking it was silly and making fun of him. And I was like nine or 10. <clears throat> and I remember at one point asking him, why do you like country music? And he said, because every song tells a story. Yeah. And I was like, oh, dad, you're so cheesy. That's corny. And, and then, and it's so funny to me because then that has become what I love, like my entire life purpose <laughs> is to, right. to tell stories through songs um, but it was about, it was, you know, the mid to late nineties when the Dixie Chicks happened and I, you know, I remember wide open spaces being on the radio and I remember driving around in my dad's 86 Chevy Nova and listening to it and just falling in love with that music, which then, then I, you know, the golden era of the nineties country is what got me into country music. Then I right. got into Tim McGraw got really into Shania Twain, Faith Hill, Martina McBride, Trisha Yearwood, all of that stuff, the Judds. And then from there, that was like my gateway. Then I started getting into older country and discovered Tammy Wynette and Patsy Cline, George Jones. Um, and then it wasn't until later high school and college that I really like hopped around because that was the, when I got into country music and country rock of like the 60s and 70s right. and got really into Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt and the band, um, Graham Parsons, 
So it's been a, it's been an evolution, um, of just kind of different periods that I've jumped. I was like nineties country now, 1950s country now, yeah. <laughs> 1970s. Yeah. Um, but that kind of just, I've all, I've still continued to love everything else. But as I started writing music, mm-hmm. it just kind of, it sounded more in that genre than any other genre. I did want to follow up on that, going back to what your father said and ask you as a songwriter, even though you have all these different musical interests, do you think that you are a country songwriter or drawn to country songwriting because of the style? So what I'm trying to say is, are you drawn to it because of the country traditions of storytelling, telling stories about people and the structure of the songs? Or do you think a song is a song and it could come out in different styles? Hmm, that's a good question. I think a song is a song and it can come out in different styles, but I do have a reverence and kind of a rootedness in the tradition of of country music telling stories about life. Um, but how that looks as a structure of a song, I'm, I think I'm a bit more flexible of you know, I think because of the way that I grew up, I don't feel very strongly rooted in anything. Like I, you know, when I listen to other friends of mine who grew up with country music, like as a tradition where they have such a deep respect and reverence for it, that it is so deeply informative of who they are as musicians. I have that respect, but I don't feel as tied because right. I, I don't feel, I think because I'm not from anywhere I don't feel like I can really call anything my own so there's this kind of weird thing that I have with country music that I'm I still feel a little on the outside um but it is what feels most natural and when I sing when I sing country songs when I sing a Patsy Cline song or that stuff feels the most natural in my body than when I try and sing something that would be considered a jazz tune or, um, you know, a R&B song. And I don't know if that's just naturally what feels right for me or if that's also the influence of out, outside opinions and comparisons and all that stuff. But right. I think country music is kind of in my core what feels the most natural. And I do strongly believe in storytelling, but at the same time, I think every song tells a story, no matter what genre it is, Mm -hmm. Um, even if it's really obscure and maybe not as straightforward. I think that just in country music, there's been an emphasis on truth telling. But I would say that that same truth telling is in, you know, Joni Mitchell's songwriting, even though she wouldn't be considered a country songwriter. Well, thank you for a very good answer to what was a very garbled question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if we go back uh, a little bit, you studied uh, at the new school, right? You got a degree in vocal jazz technique. Do I have that right? Jazz vocal performance. Okay, jazz vocal <laughs> performance. So when you were studying there, were you thinking, I don't know what 
whether that category is specifically jazz or whether that's just what they call vocal training. So were you thinking about being a singer in some other form or were you always thinking of yourself more as a country folk singer, even while you were studying this um, at school? No, I had no idea what I what I was okay. doing. I um, I ended up, you know, I, my my kind of like path in life is so all over the place. So I've tried I'll try and keep it pretty concise. But I ended up my first year of college. I went to an all women's Catholic school in Terrytown, New York, um, because I was just my plan was I was just going to get a liberal arts education. And my uncle was a um, Broadway performer, singing, acting, dancing, and he had a training studio close by. So I was like, well, I'll go to school and train with him. Maybe I'll do musical theater. Maybe I'll just get better at my craft and figure out how to write songs. I had no idea. All I knew was that I liked to sing and I, and I loved music and I loved, I played piano and that's all I knew. I didn't know what indie musicians were. I didn't know that there were careers I wasn't writing songs yet at that point. Um, so I ended up there in Terrytown and, and my uncle closed up his studio that same year and moved um, to Michigan because he thwarted my plans um, because my grandfather, unfortunately, was diagnosed with cancer and, mm. and passed away that year and he wanted to bring his family back closer to family. So I then was there, you know, what am I doing? And then I heard about, I started taking guitar lessons and heard about the new school and was like, well, I always loved singing jazz. I was in jazz band through high school. I don't think I want to be on Broadway. So, okay, I'll try to go to this school. And I ended up there really not knowing, I didn't have my vision. I didn't have a vision of being a, a jazz singer, but honestly had no idea what I was doing. So I started writing songs when I was there, and those songs are interesting to listen back to because some of them sound like uh, there's one that sounds like a country waltz, and there's one that sounds like a like a R and B like bossa mix. Like it's right. it's it's all over the place. Um, so yeah, I wasn't. I I pretty quickly figured out that I I wasn't going to be a jazz singer, and from there it was a journey to find. Um, I found. Michael Daves, who's a great bluegrass guitarist, and I started taking guitar lessons from him and learning about harmony singing, learned about the Leuven Brothers, um, Hazel Dickens and Alice Gerard, and that kind of was a turning point for me, um, as well as I took a class from the president of Nonsuch Records, mm. which opened up my musical world. I didn't know anything about Nonsuch. Um so and you learned about the business aspect, the career aspects there. I did, and I also learned about, you know, I learned about bands like Wilco, which I had okay. never listened to. Um, and that, and then I eventually ended up working at Nonsuch for a few years when I graduated. Um, so, but those two things are what, in my mind, are are the kind of, like, turning points of meeting Michael Daves and studying bluegrass meeting Bob Hurwitz at Nonsuch. And then I also started getting a second degree in um, a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology and History. And I studied American history and social movements. And music of the 1960s was so um, important and prevalent. And that is all what I think got me on my path doing what I do now. Okay. 
So let's talk about your songwriting. So since you were a student of voice, um, did you consider, as a writer, did you consider the voice your main instrument? So when you first started writing songs, did you hear them as vocals or did they more come from your piano or guitar work, do you think? Well, so I fir- I, the first songs I wrote were were definitely were piano instrumental. So I wrote like a handful of songs when I was five or six just on the piano. Okay. And then I didn't write any songs again until I was 17. Um, so it was very instrument-based first, and then I started writing lyrics. Once I started playing guitar, it really kind of – they come – to me at, at the same time, like sometimes a melody will pop into my head, but I've never fully written a song without an instrument. And I've never since, you know, my childhood, I haven't since written any instrumental songs. So they're really married for me. Yeah. I, I, you know, I did see you perform once last fall at the Americana, oh. at the Americana Fest in Nashville. Mm-hmm. It was at the event Aaron Ray put together. The Carpenters tribute. Oh yeah, right? uh-huh. which was amazing. Yeah, and were, it was so cool. There were over like twenty different acts there, right? Mm-hmm. That got up and did cover songs from the '60s. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. What was amazing to me was it seemed like almost all the performers were from Nashville, and they all knew one another. It seemed mm-hmm. like, and I looked around the club and I saw other artists there just watching, and they all knew each other. It was it was a pretty uh, amazing thing to be in the middle of, and it made me really think about that community and what it must be like to be a creative person in that community. Can you talk about that a little bit and how it influences you as an artist? Yeah, it's, I don't know. I think about it a lot because my whole life moving, I, I always feel like I'm on the outside, you know, and I lived in New York for 10 years before I moved to Nashville and my time in Nashville, because Nashville is so much smaller, it's, it lends itself to to knowing each other more um, and being more connected. But I, I feel like I'm currently in a space that I feel incredibly grateful and feel like I am part of this community that is in Nashville of, of songwriters and musicians. Um, and it's, it's incredibly encouraging. Um, it can, of course, I think everything has pros and cons. So sometimes it can feel a little stifling or sometimes I can get caught up in like, well, there's so many great talented people around me. What, why does the world need my voice or who, who am I to think that like what I have to say is of any interest or importance or value? Um, and that's like the negative, the negative, like shadow voice that comes out sometimes and really what what my experience with the community can can do is cultivate this feeling of well well everyone's voice is important and we it the exchange is what's important and you know it's not about who's a star or whatever it's the fact that we're all creative people and just by being human we're creative and we choose to to share it and we're in this this group and this community of people who you know we all might know each other deeply or just as acquaintances or just aware of each other through each other's work. Um, but it genuinely does feel very encouraging. Um, and I feel especially lucky in Nashville having, there's a really strong, uh, female 
singer-songwriter community that is incredibly supportive um, that I just, I feel really lucky that I have such a group of, of women who are all on this same path and we can discuss and feel very safe and secure to discuss like the challenges, the, the fears, the insecurities, as well as the kind of celebrations of the accomplishments. And, and we each kind of are there to say to each other, like, keep going or don't let that negative talk it in here. Like, and, you know, share songs, share stories. Um, that feels like a really wonderful thing to have that I haven't always had. Right. I, I, I saw an article recently, actually, about you, Aaron Ray, Caroline Spence, who we've interviewed here, um, and some others, and kind of the informal support group you have formed. I'm jumping ahead here because yeah. I want to talk about the song, <laughs> I Wanted Your Opinion, uh-huh. right? okay. the new album. So can you talk about that song, maybe in the context of what you're talking about, about being a woman artist and the community of women artists that you're now a part of? Yeah. So, yeah, I have that wonderful text, text thread with Caroline and Kelsey and Aaron Ray and we're in touch you know almost every day like through this through this quarantine time we've been doing a gratitude list every you know every day or as much as we remember like checking in on each other and we send each other five things that we're feeling grateful for and trying to keep each other just like in a positive healthy mindset and and I have that with with other women as well and you know part of it is also sharing some of the bullshit that we have to deal with that I am always careful. It's funny. I have a, my mom is a really strong, you know, feminist outspoken woman, but she also is always checking like to not get too heavy handed on the like, well, it's like this for women and it's this way for women and everything's a gender. And, you know, so she always is very quick to remind me, like, on my If I Wanted Your Opinion song, she's like, remember, women can be mansplainers too. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. But in my experience, 99.9% of the time. <laughs> it's a man doing the splaining. <laughs> yeah. So there's things like that we, that feel specific and particular to being women artists, whether it's the stuff that we deal with that, that you know, feels very sexist interacting with certain sound engineers or sound guys at a venue, um, Mm -hmm. just kind of like little disrespectful things. We share a lot of stories of the conversations that we have at the merch table. (laughs) Yeah. My, my, my daughter is a musician and she tells stories of sound men walking right past her and talking to the drummer or someone else about what they want. Like she's not even there. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had that experience many times where, They'll, you know, it's the show that night is my name. The posters are all around the venue of my face. And like people like a sound guy or some, a staff member will be like, oh, are you with the band? Or she's, you know, what, like whatever it is that it's very clear that they're, I'm not the person that they think they should be talking to. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we, we swap those stories or the, the unsolicited advice that is, is given and, I was thinking about a lot of that stuff. Um, and I also think just about the the quiet ways that we feel these things and then are told, no, it's just in your mind. That's not because that's not sexism and not everything is about gender. And just the kind of mind fuck that it is of, of like, am I being overly sensitive or is this real? 
and how do I address this all the time and how do I, you know, make sure that I am standing up for myself but not being overly aggressive and are these things that men even have to think about? <laughs> right. So I was I was thinking about that stuff as well as just what it means to grow up as a as a girl and how conscious we are made to be of our physical appearance, our body, our beauty or lack thereof, and how, you know, the messages that we get as far as, oh, you grow up and like, you'll find a husband to give you the things that you want rather than growing up and providing for yourself. Um, and those are messages that I, I did not receive from my parents at all. I think my mom kind of drilled into me the opposite um, because she she made the choice of not having a career because my father was in the military and that's what they decided felt best for a family when they were moving all the time. And I, and I, she's very honest about what that felt like and not regretting anything because she's proud of who she is and the, and the kids that she raised, but what that was as far as a sacrifice and me kind of growing up eyes open of making my decisions. So that's what, if I wanted your opinion, I took it to my friend, Mary Bragg, um, and was talking about that. I had kind of started the the verse and was trying to say like, what would it be? What would life be like if I wasn't, if everything wasn't kind of like in terms of what you can get through how you're perceived by, by men ultimately, whether it's because of how beautiful you are or how you're not pretty enough. Um, and I also had, I had, these are really long winded answers. <laughs> you can that's, tell me. That's, that's what we like here. <laughs> I had seen this quote of, Greta Gerwig, the the filmmaker and director, um, and that she said a lot of her stories she's trying to um, explore what life is like for a woman not under the male gaze, not always in relation to what their relationship to a man is. Um, So that was kind of the initial, like, piece of inspiration for If I Wanted Your Opinion. talk about the record as a whole you talked about being in nashville and how great that community is to you artistically you went to california to record this right mm-hmm. um, i think there's kind of a sounder feel to this entire album that reflects that but can you talk about that choice to go to california yeah so kelly winrich was a co-producer of the record and he's from san clemente and his parents have they converted their basement into a recording studio so that when that came up as an option, you know, he was like, well, we could record in New York at my studio that I work out of, or we could go to California at my parents' studio. And I was like, I already made a record in New York. I lived in New York for 10 years. I want to make a record in California. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and it's right on the water. Um, 
So that just felt like a no brainer. And then it was just kind of coincidental that for whatever reason, the last, the years leading up to it, I had been in California quite a bit and had written some songs out there. And then I, I did a writing retreat in Arizona. None of this was conscious, but the songs themselves just kind of were, a lot of them were influenced by the West Coast and the Southwest. And I, I grew up mostly in Washington State through the military. We always got stationed back there. Um, so the West Coast kind of holds this, I don't know, this healing, romantic, beautiful thing for me that especially living in landlocked Nashville, um, it's always such a reprieve to get to go to the West Coast. Um, so it all kind of like just blended together in this serendipitous way that wasn't intentional by any means. Um, I really like the varied production techniques on this album. It, it's basically a country album at its core, but kind of interpreted through various styles, right? Mm-hmm. So as I listened, particularly the first two songs, something about them was striking me. I couldn't put my finger on it till I read that you were a fan of the war on drugs, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so big fans here as well, by the way. So let's talk about the song One Heart. I really hear war on drugs influence here both in kind of the sounds we hear, the fuzzy, echoey, meandering guitar lines, Mm -hmm. but also kind of the structure of the song itself. It starts quietly, takes us on this journey, builds into kind of a frenzy, and then falls off again. So can you talk about this one and maybe if I'm totally off base with what I'm hearing here? Yeah, so, you know, One Heart is also an example of, like the song form is not a typical, like, country song form. There's, like, not really a chorus there kind of is but it only happens it happens like once and then happens again at the end and then there's this kind of bridge thing so it's not like a typical this is where I'm like an example of where I I feel like I'm not totally a country songwriter in that there kind of are these things that in the country world I've been told well that doesn't make sense for a song I'm like but you need a bridge yeah yeah but it makes sense for me (laughs) so um (laughs) So yeah, that was a song that was, um, that was one of the first songs that we did. And I, you know, I intentionally said, I want to make a record that feels like a nineties pop country record, but has the production value that I love of, um, Tame Impala and War on Drugs and Raylan Baxter. And those were kind of my references and the, the Kathleen Edwards record Voyager that Justin Vernon produced. Okay. Um, I really love just this kind of like expansive, washy, um, fuzzed out uh, production. And also it almost has this like modern day, like Fleetwood Mac feeling to me. Um, those were all of the references that we kept talking about when we were making the record and specifically that song. And yeah. I always want like the music to feel representative of the lyrical journey as well so that kind of arc of the song I'm a fan of that arc in general of just kind of like coming to a fever pitch and then coming back down that that just feels like a nice ride um so that that to me just kind of that was my favorite type of song to make it's minor it's kind of you know sad but then it rocks out but then it also gets soft (laughs) 
Well, I think it's great. And, you know, I, mean, I will put a clip of the song in here, but I cannot do it justice with just a clip. So I really encourage our listeners to listen to the whole song to really get the feel of what we're talking about here, about the journey that it takes. Oh, thank you. said I like the variety of the production on the album and you just talked about fitting the lyrics the style of the song to the lyrics so we'll go from talking about the war on drugs and Tame Impala to the song Two Fools mm-hmm. which is a wonderfully traditional honky-tonk song both in the musical style pedal steel and everything else but the lyrics really are right down the pipe of, of that style right self-deprecating kind of clever sad love song mm-hmm. um do you maybe find this song harder or easier to write since it kind of follows a, a, a pattern of sorts? Um, that one was was a little tricky. That one, I, it kind of, it came out quickly at first. And then I, you know, I had another verse that I had written. So making the decisions of like, how, how concise do I make this? Am I taking away from it by adding more? Um that's the kind of challenge with a song like that of how to keep it really minimal. That's what I think is the, the power of songs. Like I'm a huge Charlie Rich fan and his song, I can't even drink it away. That song Mm -hmm. is so powerful with such few words, but paints such a picture. And that's what, when I write a song like two fools, that's what I'm trying to do even a fraction of <laughs> I'll try not to laugh too So you have some songs on this record that are co-written, right? Can you talk about the collaborative process for you, how it is different than writing on your own, and maybe what you get out of co-writing that you didn't really expect? Was there anything surprising about the process for you? Yeah, I have such a kind of layered relationship to co-writing. I think, you know, before I moved to Nashville, I didn't really do any co-writing. And then I feel like I've kind of gotten to this habit of the last several years of co-writing a lot where I've kind of I think leaned heavily on co-writing to 
force me to finish songs. <laughs> um, that it's easy for me to just kind of, I start a ton of songs, but then I don't finish them and I get tired. And a co-writing session forces me because honestly, it shames me because I don't want the person sitting across from me to think that I'm a lazy writer. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I have to finish this because we're here. Or if I was on my own, I probably would get up and go do something else. Um, so that it holds me accountable. Um, it pushes me to hear things in a different way. We all have our, you know, kind of vocabulary of our lyrical vocabulary and our musical vocabulary that I think any one of us can get kind of tired of. So it, it helps to push me beyond that. Um, I'm thinking right now of, and kind of starting recording at home of figuring out the next collection of songs for a, ne a new record and have been thinking a lot about what you give up in co-writing in developing your own sound and what you also right. gain from co-writing. And I'm still kind of thinking a lot about that. And I've, I've kind of like finding the right balance. Yeah. And I, you know, I wrote a song recently with someone and I, I was like, I can't tell if this feels like me or not. And that's an interesting aspect that sometimes you can write a song and, and be a full participant, but decide, I don't think that's really for me to record and share, but maybe somebody else would. So the, this record, though, Desert Dove, is kind of half and half. Um, and then some of the songwriting credits on there, like Sam has quite a few. Sam Outlaw has quite a few songwriting credit, credits. But he kind of had more of an editor role where he was a co-producer. So I would bring a song and he would make suggestions like, what if you moved the phrase this way? Or what if you switched out this word or cut this word? Um, and is this happening while you're in the studio? Yes, uh, before how we did it was we got together and like worked through songs a couple of times and then we all met at the studio and a couple of days before the band came in, we went through all of the songs with a fine tooth comb and did some edits. Um, okay. But yeah, each song I feel very, um, I have different feelings about them. Some songs I feel very protective of and like Desert Dove, um, was a song that I was like, I don't think anyone should touch this. This this song was given to me, and it just appeared, and it is what it is. Right. But other songs like Run Away With Me, I was like, I can't quite figure this out. So I was very open to um, a lot of collaboration and contribution. Let's talk about the song Child of the Wind. Mm -hmm. um, it contains the line, uh, everybody's temporary friend. This uh, strikes me clearly as a reflection of your upbringing, moving around a lot, right? Yes. So now here you are, your life as a touring musician. You come and go from people's lives every night. So can you talk about this song and maybe how your somewhat itinerant upbringing has shaped your creative life and your songwriting? Yeah, everything feels temporary to me. I continue to just reflect on how deeply that is ingrained in me. Um, just the comfort and the feeling of like, oh, this relationship or this having the people you love close by, just that continuing on through time, that I don't know. I don't know that feeling. Um, right. Because, you know, growing up, everywhere we were, we had left someplace else. So I was missing the people that we had left. 
And I was also anticipating that we were going to leave again. So what I was experiencing at that time was going to end. Everything is always going to end. Visiting my grandparents, my cousins, my aunts and uncles that I love so much, that time was always going to come to an end. I would never know what it would feel like to just be able to call them anytime and hang out just to live in the same town. Um, And I've continued that because I moved away at 18. I've never lived in the same town as my parents or my brother since then. And then I've chosen this life of touring. And even if I'm not touring, I've just, it's like a sickness. I'm always planning trips. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm never, I'm never still. So this, this quarantine time is really interesting to me of, of observing my, I even have these weird feelings that I've been feeling guilty about of like sinking into what it feels like to be home every day right now and not have to go somewhere. And I feel myself like relaxing and, but also feeling anxious about the world outside, but then having this feeling of, Oh, this is what it feels like to not be anticipating the next trip because I don't know when that's going to be. And I'm just home every day. And this is actually really nice and foreign and oh no, now I don't want this to end because right. my go-to habit is if I like something, it's going to end. So I've been then grappling with that feeling of, oh my God, I'm hope I'm now anxious about the fact that quarantine is going to end. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> you may so, be a very small group of people who's worried about that. Exactly. It's a deep, <laughs> it's a deep emotional habit. <laughs> so <laughs> So that song is, yeah, it's just, it's exactly about that. And that even my closest friends, I've always thought about the fact that I've never been a a maid of honor and I kind of doubt that I ever will be because I have incredibly close friendships, but I'm nobody's like number one best friend because I'm always away. you to do a public service announcement okay you spent a lot of your time early in your your career studying voice right it was your specialization in college i believe you you still kind of teach and maybe lecture on on vocal technique right yes i do yes written written some books so can you talk about using your voice as an instrument in terms of learning what you can do with it through practice maybe as a psa to folks out there who don't think they can sing right Yes. Don't you think we can all, no matter where we are in the singing spectrum, get better at singing if we practice? I do. And, you know, one of the reasons that I am very passionate about learning about the voice as an instrument and teaching voice is that understanding that, you know, we all are kind of given a different level of an innate ability to access the instrument that we have. And yes, some of us are born kind of just knowing how to use it much better than others. And yes, some of us are born with just a more pleasing voice. But 
we do have the ability to learn how to use it. And that's what I believe really strongly in for, for your health, for longevity, and also to just access the joy that is singing that I think we've gotten far away from. I always try and, and tell my students, you know, there was a time in history that people played music at, together and sang songs as a favorite pastime that you would sing songs while working, you would sing songs with your family, you would sing songs at church. Everyone would sing because that's what you do. Not because you're going to go on American Idol and the second you open your mouth, you're trying to show everybody what a great singer you are. That kind of attitude that has permeated our our psyche, (laughs) I think is really detrimental because it automatically makes us feel self-conscious of oh, I'm not good enough to share my voice or, oh, if I am sharing my voice, people think I must think I'm good enough. And, you know, rather than just getting back in touch with the fact that it just feels really good to sing. Well, thank you for that public service announcement. I can now warn my family that dad's going to be singing a lot more. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So the album closes with song be easy right a stark and beautiful love song i i really love it it's just you an acoustic guitar um lyrically it's kind of a touching letter to a troubled friend right Mm -hmm. so can you talk about how this song made its way onto the album yeah i wrote that song um oh man probably seven or eight years ago at this point and i never knew what to do with it because again it didn't It doesn't have a traditional song form. I was like, well, there's these verses and then there's this chorus and then there's this like extra section. I don't, do I repeat things? Like I didn't know what to do. Um, But I I wrote the song thinking of a friend, but also for myself as just kind of like a mantra. And I remember I played it one time for my husband and years later, he was kind of having a stressful time and he, he was like, what's the song that I keep singing in my head? And he like hummed it to me. And I was like, that's my song. <laughs> wow. And he was like, oh, yeah, I just <laughs> keep hearing like my friend be easy. And um, so then it kind of like came back in my consciousness. And then when it came to making this record, I, you know, we had all the songs picked out and I was like, well, I have this one other song that I don't know what to do with. So we we sat on the deck and Sam just pulled out his iPhone and said, all right, let's just make a demo and um, let me hear it. And I sang it and played it right there and the first time on his voice memo. And he was like, I think that's it. Let's just use a voice memo. So that's what's on the record? Yeah. The voice memo. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And that song... It's been so interesting to me, just the journey, you know, the things that I've kind of dismissed as being too simple or not, not, um, falling into this like known formula or whatever have proven to me often to be the most connective songs. And I often close my live show singing that on the Mm. floor off mic and just in the crowd and I ask everyone to come in closer and I've realized I'll sing the song and like I try personally to look at everybody in the eye and like make eye contact and that's 
actually really makes me nervous and uncomfortable. And it's been such a good practice for me to really understand, you know, that to put my insecurities aside and know Mm -hmm. that like my performance and my song is an offering and a gift and not about what I'm getting in exchange for it and not be thinking about how are people judging me or or do they like what they're hearing? Do they hate this? Are they going to buy merch? Like all of the things that can go (laughs) through your head when you're like depending on this as your livelihood. Um, And it's been really powerful for me to just every night try and look at each person in the eye and not shy away from that vulnerability and connection with strangers. Um, And it's been incredible to see also to feel that connection and see that the response of emotion from from those who are are there with me. Bitterness and pain have darkened your heart and mind. I will love you just the same as when you are full of light. important topic to bring up i read that you were a judge for several songwriting competitions right mm-hmm. including the american songwriter magazine contest right mm-hmm. i was once selected as an honorable mention winner in the monthly contest for that magazine. nice are you willing to take responsibility for bestowing that honor <laughs> upon me because if you are i think my family would like a word with you since <laughs> i never shut up about it <laughs> was it this year <laughs> It was, uh, it was last year. I can give you the exact date. I've got seven copies of the magazine here with my name in it, if you'd like to see. Okay, no, I think I, it was last year okay. sometime. Then I can't take responsibility because I'm, I'm we, a judge this year. <laughs> okay. We had, we had Caroline Spence do a, a house concert um, last year mm-hmm. at, our, at, our, at our house, and she won that contest a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I introduced her, I said, like in part of my introduction, I went on and on about her winning this contest and how big a deal it was. And she was looking at me like, why is he making such a big deal about this thing that happened three years ago? And I see my kids out in the audience with their heads in their hands, like shaking their head at me. So, <laughs> Honorable mention. Congratulations. I will say for just for another PSA, <laughs> for anyone who applies for those songwriting contests, and doesn't get an honorable men- mention or when I thought anything. everyone got an honorable mention. <laughs> <Yeah>. I didn't. <laughs> but anybody who enters those and doesn't get it, do not be deterred. <laughs> like, okay. I, you know, I've entered a lot of songwriting contests. I've been in the final rounds. I've, you know, and now I judge them, whatever. But everything is so subjective and so... I mean, so, you're talking about judging a creative exercise that's kind exactly. of... Exactly. And yeah. the context of of what the judge is doing the rest of the day, how much focus they're able to actually give it, you know, like, I'm always just like, those contests are great because of what, you know, what connections you can make and who you can, 
who you can meet and all that stuff. But if you don't get anything, do not let that be a disappointment that stops you from doing more because they're not, they're just one person's opinion and there's so many things that come into play and it does not mean you are not a good songwriter. All right. Thank you for that. So <laughs> well, let's touch on one more thing before I let you go. You talked a little bit about how this downtime is affecting you. So what about creatively? And do you think maybe one of the positive aspects of this, do you think we're going to get a creative kind of explosion from all these artists who should be touring, who are now at home and maybe they're taking that time uh, to be creative? Do you think that's going on? I think so. But I, I think also, you know, I've seen a lot of, you know, posts and stuff on social media of like, you better be creating. And then some counter posts of like, stop putting pressure on yourself to create. <laughs> so right. I think, you know, whether it means that people are creating work right now in this time, or if it means that this experience is going to inspire creative output in the future, right? I think that um, is undeniable because this is a, a you know, a world changing period of time and everyone is going to be experiencing it very differently. So I think whatever this experience does for people, whatever self-reflection, however you feel changed by it, I, I definitely think either people are going to be making stuff from this during this time or inspired by this time for sure. Okay. That's great. Michaela, thanks so much for taking the time today and uh, putting up with some technical difficulties earlier that involved a spilled glass of water. <laughs> um, but this has been a great chat, and we really look forward to seeing you in person up here in Evanston when all this is over. Thank you so much. I hope you guys are keeping your, your health and safety and sanity, and um, I hope to be in the Midwest soon. Great. Yeah. All right, thanks. Thank you. Well, you say I love to fast.